The business super conference that all of you need to be at is finally here. Tickets have dropped to the original VFriends holders but are now available to buy. Uh, I have a link in my bio for the people that have never bought an NFT but want to come because they've heard that Busta Rhymes and Deepak Chopra and Steve Bartlett and all these people are speaking. Go to vcon.co, C-O, drop the M, to see what's going on there. But the link in my bio has a site that we have on VCon that will let you fill it out and will help you get a ticket to our super conference, May 18th to the 20th in Indianapolis, Indiana. The conference is bananas. The 50 speakers I'm about to announce, bananas. This is the huge super business, pop culture and innovation conference. I want everybody in my community to be there. So link in bio or click here because the team is using this in all sorts of formats to make sure you get to Indy in May for the super business conference of the year. I hope to see all of you there. Experience. But I actually wanted to take a bit of a slight different turn to start this off because, uh, and I, I hope this is also, I, I wanted to hear one of the stories that I actually listened to one of the podcasts uh, not so long ago actually, where there was an amazing story about you, Gary, in terms of, at least I felt, a huge inspiration and what really sets you off, like why you do what you do. I think you know the story that I'm talking about, but it is about when you met this boy named Jet and asked him what yeah. his favorite number was. So maybe we can start off with that one because I think that sets it off in the right direction here. Well, thank you, my friend. Recently, I met a, a friend's son and his. I asked him what his name is and he says Jet. And I like that because my favorite sports team, an American football team called the New York Jets. So that was fun and that was a nice little moment. And then I say, what, what, what's your favorite number? And he says five. And that really caught my attention um, because for some of you that have seen my content, when I take a selfie, I always put up the number five. And that's because when I was seven years old, my mother knitted me a Jets jersey and put the number five on it because it was already my favorite number. And that jersey really represents a lot to me, that knitted sweater, because we weren't, uh, we were poor and we wouldn't have the money back then to buy a Jets sweater. And so, you know, it's really always stuck with me. You know, I, I, um, I've, I've always wanted to make my parents proud. I think for a lot of us, we think about our why, I'm so grateful for what my parents did for me. You know, I grew up very humbly. We, I was born in the Soviet Union. I came to the U.S. when I was three years old. We lived with many family members in small rooms, and it was just a grind. And my family really worked hard um, and worked with love and worked with tenacity. And, you know, so much of what I try to do today in a lot of ways is give back to the world in my content, the learnings, the observations, a lot of which were instilled in me by my mom and my dad, and many of which I picked up along the way and observed through uh, my decades of my journey. And I'm very motivated by that. I, I believe that I'm the byproduct of very good parenting and specific circumstances of non-account, you know, non-entitlement, that being very accountable. Um, and, but that jersey and that story gets me very emotional in many different settings because um, it just represents my journey, really. It really does. 
That's amazing. And I really love that story, especially since you mentioned many times also in your social media to buy the New York Jets at some point. Yes. But uh, what I really loved, especially what you mentioned in that podcast, was what you're going to do with that jersey too, to set it at the entrance. <laughs> so what was that quote that you wanted to put there? Yes, I, I, have a, I have a big dream that one day once I accomplish that, I'll put that jersey in there and, and uh, it will ha hang when people walk into the stadium. It says, from not being able to afford a jersey to owning the whole damn team. So uh, I have big ambitions. I enjoy the process. I'm also very detached from my goals. And here's what I mean. I want to achieve them professionally, personally, but I'm okay with not achieving them. I, I'm very driven to try my best. Um, but I love the thrill of the hunt. I won't be devastated if I'm not able to buy the New York Jets. Um, and I think that is a healthy relationship that I think more people should consider. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, that touches upon a, a lot of interesting topics in terms of like gratitude, patience that you ha have also mentioned in many times. And there's actually one of the kind of top questions we have from the audience right now in terms of how can I balance my work and personal life to ensure I am living a fulfilling life both professionally and personally. Uh, so I actually wanted to connect this a bit with what you're also mentioning since you talk a lot about kind of speeding up the micro but patience in the macro too so what do you what would you say to this question you know i think it's a personal journey i you know there is no right answer for living a fulfilled life everyone's life is very different and i think there is no balance meaning you know some people work nine to five four days a week and they define that as a very balanced work to personal life other people work nine to seven five days a week and they feel that's good balance. Other people, you know, work even more than that and they find that's good balance. On the flip side, there are people who work nine to five, five days a week and feel like they should have more time off, more vacation time, four day work weeks. So, you know, I think for me, it's very hard to answer that question because it's a very personal journey. I would say that you can't be scared to adjust along the way. I think the thing that I most focus on is being okay with working more or less than I did before for the next four years and then switching back. Um, you have to be adaptable. And when you have a moment where you have to put more time into your personal or professional life, you have to be prepared for that and capable of that. And I, I think that's the answer to that question. Mm. So how is that also then, if we're continuing on that one, because it feels like a lot of people are also sitting, like wanted to really drive in that kind of career path. They want to like like go up that ladder, of course. At the same time, they should also be patient. They should also have like, they feel in many cases for, for the average person, it might feel like there's so many things to kind of keep an eye out on at the same time. You should have patience, but you should also climb the, the ladder of success or well, the, the ladder Well, that's, of that, that's, that's because people confuse patience with, with lack of ambition. That's why people, when I say patience, I don't say be complacent. I don't see be, you know, when I say patience, sometimes people are like, well, I don't want to be lazy. And I'm like, I'm not saying lazy. I'm not saying complacent. I'm not saying don't have goals. I'm saying that, you know, you have more time than you think. I mean, you know, I worked in a liquor store until I was 34 years old. That's just the truth. Um, and and so I just am very aware that you can accomplish everything you want to accomplish over time. Um, and 
I, I think you're right. I mean, I'm as ambitious as it gets. I'm obsessed with being ambitious. I think it's fantastic. Um, competitive, fantastic. Um, trying to be a winner, fantastic. Um, grow, promoted, uh, all fantastic. But if you lack patience in that journey, you will take shortcuts. And when you take shortcuts, you could stumble uh, or worse, really throw the whole thing off. And so, you know, I I. I don't see an issue with people's ambition these days. I see an issue with their, um, you know, with their patience. And that's why I talk about micro speed, macro patience on a day-to-day basis. If you're ambitious, you need to go hard. 15 minute meetings, lots of them did all that stuff. But in the macro, it can take three years and that's okay. And I think a lack of patience is an enormous vulnerability for a lot of people who are watching this. Mm. That's interesting. And I wanted to continue a bit on that topic because that kind of transitions also into especially being a leader. And of course, the, the many people that are watching this right now are also like top level executives from many big organizations. And as you have talked a lot about this speed in the micro, patience in the macro. And I, I think there was also one quote one time said that you'll be surprised on how much you can get done in seven minutes. So what are you also like connecting that one to when you are a leader, you might have like a lot of people being accountable for, but also speeding that one up to also as a leader within an organization. Yeah, I mean, when you're, think about being a leader, when you misstep, you're really putting people in a precarious spot. And so I think it becomes amplified when you're a leader. I think the requirement for patience is even greater. Thoughtfulness is even greater. Accountability is even greater. And so, you know, Everything I believe in becomes magnified 50x um, once you become a leader, a manager, a C-suite executive, a leader of a division, and definitely when you become the owner or CEO of a company. And so, yeah, I think it, it, it just magnifies it. Interesting indeed. And uh, speaking about the, that, that leader too, it's uh, also been said that as a leader, you have to fall in love with accountability. And if you're a CEO and the employees aren't performing, that's on you. And how do you see that kind of a realization? Because to be honest, in the modern world, in the real world, it also feel like everybody is following that kind of principle. But what did that mean for you in terms of VaynerMedia, but also as in, in installation for a lot of other organizations? Yeah, I mean, I push accountability very aggressively because I think it leads to happiness, believe it or not. Um, It seemingly seems like not, you know, my fault. You start beating yourself up, but it's, it's not true. When you fall in love with true accountability, you're able to really begin to navigate. You're not wasting time on blaming and pointing fingers. And so, yeah, I mean, when I wrote that, when I talk about that, People struggle with that. They they're like, you don't get it, Gary. My employee this, my employee that. I'm like, well, you can afford, you can fire that employee. You're in charge. You know, if your employee is so terrible, you know, you can either build them up or you can fire them, and that means you're in charge. And so, you know, I I think this is pretty black and white, um, and I think that people need to fall in love with accountability more, and I think that will lead to less anxiety and more happiness. Mm. So 
when you also are in those kind of situations, say you have taken that accountability, following along with it, then also comes the questions to have those heart talks sometimes that maybe someone yeah. isn't performing and maybe someone is performing. And I think that's, that direction goes a bit into what the actual book of 12 and a half also means, which is I did it as a bit of a cliffhanger in the beginning, what your half is. And I'm interested also, since you wrote this one kind of back in 2020, 2021, like th those years, and I'm a bit curious also how you see this, well, this half now topic kind of working for you in VaynerMedia, but also how you see that today. It's a great question. So the for everyone who's watching, the this is a book about 13 principles that I think really matter in creating business success. And the 13th was candor. And I'm pretty vulnerable in the book that, you know, Gary Vee in these settings, keynotes, fireside chats, public content, he's very good at candor. But one-on-one, -on -one, especially with people I love, I struggled and continue to struggle um, at times with candor. Um, I rebranded candor to myself. Uh, and now this concept of kind candor is really working for me. It's transformed media. We've become a much better organization um, because of kind candor. And um, I'm really happy about that. Um, I feel like it's had a huge impact. A lot of people were scared to give feedback to people at our company because we had such a great culture and, and negative feedback was something that was hard to deliver because then somebody would complain about the feedback and we were oversensitive. We needed to find our balance. On the flip side, so many companies are toxic and not good because candor is being used as a weapon to be not kind and to manipulate people that work below you. And so once we found that combination of words, kind candor, it's really worked for us. I've made huge advancements. The company's made huge advancements and the company has been able to grow significantly because of that kind candor. Mm. And you, you could already kind of spot that one and you've talked quite a lot about it over the years. And how do you see that now kind of coming into 2023? We have quite a lot of things happening, of course, also in the, in the world in general, but you still see that kind of path growing and the importance of kind candor. Like what is the meaning still same for you? What has that changed when you've implemented at VaynerMedia? It's become more important. You know, I think, I believe it is for a company like ours, if you have a good culture um, and you have a kind framework, candor is actually what you need. You're not going to lose on people, you know, politicking and all that negativity. You're going to lose on entitlement. You're, when you don't have candor, you can create entitlement because underperformers can start getting confused and thinking that they, they are performing at a higher level than they actually are. And so this is a big one. Um, you know, I look at it today and going forward as a bigger need. And for companies that don't have good uh, cultures, by adding the word kind in front of candor, it may add a lot more kindness. And I think that would be important as well, because that will create retention and uh, employees delivering at a higher level. That's amazing to hear. So also, of course, looking forward to seeing that growing even more and especially that more organizations also start implementing that. Uh, we have a 
ton of additional topics that we can also go into, but I wanted to take a bit of a track also in some of the audience questions here because we need to go through some of them too, of course. So there might be a bit spread ones here, but uh, the one That's that right. is actually the most voted one right now is how do you ensure successful strategy implementation without getting distracted by new ideas? <laughs> I'm not scared by being distracted by new ideas. Um, new ideas are healthy. Um, so I think that's a game of and. I think you're capable of staying on course while moving your head to the left, moving your head to the right, seeing different things. I think do not demonize the occasional um, veering off the road because I think that speaks to creativity. And sometimes creativity um, can actually make something operationally stronger. And so the more you're looking around and getting nuances or inspiration, the the more potential you have to actually find a small thing that you can bring to the table on the thing that you're trying to core operate. Um, so the answer to my question is, I'm not overtly worried about when one gets distracted. Again, in the micro, um, you can't be distracted for a year and then not do the thing you were supposed to do. And so it's kind of like the 80-20 rule. If, if you're putting 80% of your energy against operating that vision, but 20% of your time or energy is being deviated to curiosity, I think that curiosity may lend itself to making your 80% act like 110% instead of 100%. And so I'm a big fan of, of actually deviating at times. Mm. And since you're also speaking about that, that in in the micro, it's okay that it's more of an and thing that you can also look left and right sometimes, but in the, in more the macro, the direction should still be towards that vision. So how do you ensure that if you, like in many companies, you say you need to be innovative, like agility and, and all of that. But at the same time, how do you make sure then that the ideas doesn't become a thousand different projects as you all try to do at the same time and then start losing that focus. How do you ensure that you stay on that track? Making decisions, you know, like not allowing it, you know, operating, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, to me, that is not hard. That is a, that's a decision game. That's an accountability game. That's a leadership game. That's being an operator game, a project manager, you know, to me, <clears throat> I think the bigger thing is what happens if you wake up and you realize you did do 500 things and you're only supposed to do 50. That goes into a place of not beating yourself up, not overtly being upset with yourself, being accountable and addressing it by cutting 450 projects and going back to focusing on 50. Interesting indeed. Uh, let's do the next uh, most upvoted question here, which uh, is quite an interesting one uh, for you, Gary. What is the biggest failure you had or made, and what did you learn from it? With a follow-up question, what do you suggest for us then? <laughs> I think my biggest failures were based on the lack of candor. Um, you know, I haven't had any catastrophic financial failures in my career. I've been pretty disciplined, pretty conservative, um, thoughtful. I think where I've had issue is there are people that walk around earth that are not as fond of me as my intent and the way I was parented and my goodness in my heart would want me to have it be. And the reason is they are the byproduct of my lack of candor. I was unable to along the way 
communicate to them my frustrations or the organization's frustrations. And thus, when they were fired, they were surprised and angry because they were not being communicated to in a proper way. And so my biggest failure by far is that there are, even though I've managed tens of thousands of people, even having a couple of dozen people have a bad taste in their mouth towards me feels like a failure. And what I've done about it is I've put my vulnerability into the world in the form of a book, 12 and a half, and I've attacked that vulnerability on a daily basis. I still struggle with it. There's still moments in the last two, three months where I've not been as candorous with executives uh, as I've wanted to be, but I do work on it on an everyday basis. And um, I've, you know, I, what I've done about it is I've shedded light on it, both within my own brain and in public. And uh, I'm trying to hold myself accountable to being better. And uh, that's an interesting part. And I actually wanted to connect that also to to another question here. Uh, could be on the kind candor topic, of course, but also in general, because there's a question here on what is your source of inspiration? And that can be in general of inspiration, but also maybe in this place with kind candor, like was it more of an insight you came to conclusion yourself or was it also from a source of inspiration that, oh, maybe I should actually start looking at in this direction? How would you see that? That came through just life events and just being honest and accountable. I think inspiration, I'm very inspired by people in tough positions. You know, um, employees that lose a sibling, uh, a child, um, a parent way too early, friends or acquaintances that are single moms with four children working three jobs. I'm very inspired by people that smile in the face of massive adversity. And um, and I think those people are very important because I believe in the human spirit. I believe in the world. And right now I find that we have a lot of people who are lacking accountability and are incredibly entitled and thinks and think that the world owes them something and are struggling and it's coming at their own expense. And so I'm, uh, I'm personally inspired constantly by stories of adversity um, where people have the emotional strength to deal with very negative, very real situations in life and still are able to wake up in the morning, smile um, and bring positivity, even though they're dealing with very difficult situations of um, illness or death of people they love. And just to stay a bit on that topic too, because there is also one question in how do you measure success for yourself? And I must say that taking that humility aspect into this game gets a very different perspective of what success actually is. That might be a success on one part while someone else might be, well, when I'm CEO, then I will be happy and successful. So what's your take on how to measure that kind of success and how do you do it? For, for me, success is freedom. Can I do anything I want anytime I want? Um, other people have success metrics around titles or certain amount of money in their bank account or many different things. You know, for me, it's very much, um, am I able to wake up this morning and do whatever I want? Uh, and, and do I like it? Am I happy overall? And I think to me, that's a, that's a very big. And so that, that's how I measure success, freedom, you know, um, freedom to create freedom to operate. And I have a lot of that. And so for me, that's a very, very, very big, big thing. And, you know, everyone's success metric is extremely personal. So I don't think I can impose my 
belief in success. But for me, simplicity, like, is everybody healthy? Am I happy? Very grandmother mentality versus kind of alpha businessman mentality, which which I have an alpha businessman. I have big ambitions. We started with that. Um, but, you know, for me, success is freedom. I think that one word sums it up quite well. And I think that's, uh, that was also quite interesting too, because uh, in the beginning before you came live, we also did a bit of a uh, question to the audience in one word, what they're most grateful for. And a lot of those words actually came up with family, health. There were even some sunny weather comments coming up. So I think yeah. a lot of people actually have that one. It, it doesn't need to be too hard to actually measure, measure but you success. Know, but, but, but you know what scares me? A lot of people answered that in your pre-questions, and I don't believe that all of them believe it or live it. It's easy to say you're grateful for the sun coming up. If that's true, then 98% of your day should be smiling and being happy. And I have a lot of people who speak to being grateful, but then when I watch them navigate their business life, um, it's just not true. They're they're struggling with um, with anxiety over silly things. And um, I I highly recommend people. Um, take a step back here and ask themselves, when I answered that question earlier, was that true? Being accountable for yourself, living true to your values in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's very interesting. Indeed. Uh, let's actually, I wanted to also, of course, uh, with this time, uh, touch a bit on the topics of kind of what happens also out there in the world, a bit more in terms of business trends, emerging technologies and so on. And one of them that I really want to dive into with you, Gary, is especially one of the topics that you talk so much about, which is NFTs uh, today. Uh, a bit that you yes. mentioned, like the Web 3.0 being kind of what social media did back, back in the days, like in the early kind of 2000s. Uh, but in this context too, with the audience being from quite big organizations too, I think at least with vFriends, that has been a lot on kind of the artistic point of view for NFTs. But what is your kind of look on NFTs now today for the near future, also in terms of big enterprises and how to adapt that? From a big enterprise standpoint, you know, because the NFT market had so much green in it, last year. Um, one of the things I did was made a lot of videos that 99% were going to go to zero. And a lot of that became true um, because there was a lot of greed. People were buying these collectibles and wanting them to go up and trading them. And so you know, to me, NFTs is one of the biggest technologies we've seen in the last 40 years. They're, you know, decentralized servers that have smart contracts on them is a very big conversation um, for membership, for, for tickets, for, um, for title insurance. Um, really, most contracts eventually will find them their way into the blockchain. Plus, the way that NFTs will play out on the consumer lens, not the B2B lens that I just referred to, is going to be through expression. Um, the fashion industry, the watch industry, the car, uh, high-end car business, a lot of that is built on not only do you like the item, but you use it as a way to communicate of who you are. But I, I feel like humans um, use buying things as a form of communication. And so I think you'll see a lot of people over the next decades um, start to realize some of the subtle uh, aspects of NFTs, but I think, you know, big enterprises, especially if you're, let's say, a luxury brand, issuing an NFT as a receipt is better than issuing a, uh, 
a receipt as a QR code or a piece of paper. Um, all, you know, the, there's so many dynamics to be played out in the future. And so much like websites in 1996 were static, not dynamic, did very little. I think that's where we're at right now in NFT land. But over time, over the next 20, 30 years, I think you'll see major advancements. Mm. Indeed, and especially this Web 3.0 really coming up. And I want to connect that then because, of course, over the course of these many years so far, you've also been a huge advocate of this Web 2.0, and especially with social media. So that was also in, in several of your books also, of course, the Thank You Economy, Jab, 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 Right Hook, like the, these kind of things. What, what, how do you see that also evolving now when we're entering like 2023 and it feels like Web 3.0 is kind of coming up and running, but... How is the importance of social media and Web 2.0 still? I mean, for everybody here, a proper social media strategy, both from a creative standpoint and a media standpoint, is imperative. Um, unlike NFTs, which were, it's a nice to have and it's a little thing that's growing, social now is at scale. It's not 2006 anymore. Um, we're 17 years 20 years into this social media journey. And now almost everybody on earth has a social media account over the age of 14. And that means a lot of attention is on these platforms. And it's also a huge opportunity for enterprises to win on relevance, not just awareness, um, to create context, to be able to do a lot of things that, um, that they can't do from television or print or radio. And so I'm, I'm incredibly bullish on what it is, but it continues to become a challenge because it's very hard to do. It's hard to be great at social media, which is why so many companies overpay for it. And it gets abandoned in a lot of organizations, It, which is a huge mistake because it is where the consumer's attention is at scale. Um, the amount of hours that are spent on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, it's staggering. It's staggering. It's, it's the plumbing of our information society now. And, you know, I continue to marvel at big enterprises' ability to continue to underestimate its importance. Um, and so I think a consistent output of creative and content is imperative to be a relevant brand or organization. If you're B2B, you're posting three, four times a day on LinkedIn. If you're B2C, you're, you're posting 30 times a day across seven, 12 different platforms. If you're a Fortune 5,000, Fortune 50,000 company. And so I think, you know, for me, that is like oxygen. I couldn't imagine being a large enterprise and not being great at social media. Mm. And uh, I did hear a rumor not so long ago, actually, that there might be some works on a jab, 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 left hook. <laughs> so is that something that is uh, kind of in the works now? When kind of what will that purpose be maybe compared to the right hook? <laughs> I wrote jab, 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 right hook 10 years ago, and it was really to help people understand how to make impactful social media content. And you're right. The rumors are true. I'm, I'm actively writing jab, 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 left hook. And it's a modern take on it. You know, things have changed over the last 10 years and platforms have changed. And so uh, I'm attacking what one needs to do in social to be successful and what the platforms are about. And there's a framework I call PAC, Platforms and Culture. And if you're not understanding how the platforms are working, uh, what are the tactical things you could be doing? A carousel ad, um, 
what are the first three seconds like? All these really smart things. And if you're not paying attention to culture, who's cool? What's cool? What flavors are interesting? What's fashion's interesting? What people are interesting? Um, those to me are the two things that really play out. And um, I'll be writing that book and hopefully it'll come out next year. Nice. Looking forward to it indeed. Thank uh, you. So especially with that one too, I also wanted to jump uh, into one other very kind of important trend or kind of emerging technology that is also getting quite a lot of attention these days, but the importance of information and, and data. And I think one of the ones that most people know about these days and are very intrigued about is, of course, the chat GPT. Uh, and I think that was also uh, commented on one time that, oh, AI is taking over our jobs. <laughs> so what is your kind of take on like that importance of data, of information, especially connecting to artificial intelligence, such as ChatGPT, but there's, of course, a bunch of others out there, too. Look, artificial intelligence is probably one of the biggest conversations in our society right now. Um, it's going to be a big deal. Um, we're all still figuring it out. Um, there's a lot to learn. But, you know, I think I would say this to everybody. You need to assume in five years that AI is a meaningful part of your day-to-day -day life, whether it's taking care of automating your scheduling, or whether it's uh, information or helping you be better at critical thinking or, you know, building relationships. I mean, there's so much that AI can get into. And so I think it's a little early. I don't like guessing, you know, I like tasting things and then observing and understanding what one can do with it. But it's very clear that this m massive technology is coming at scale. And you know, for a long time, people have said technology is going to take people's jobs. And, uh, you know, I think there's way too much fear in the world. And in general, like people, when social media came out, they said that people are going to get kidnapped all the time because of it. You know, so I think people are always throwing around fear in the face of new technologies. Um, and, you know, I'm empathetic to that. People don't like change, but this is inevitable. Nobody's going to stop it. And, um, I think it's going to have a humongous impact on our society sooner than, let's say, some of the Web3 dynamics that will take time. And so it's going to be interesting to watch. And um, I'm definitely mentally prepared for it and putting in the time and effort to understand what the um, opportunities are with these technologies. And so we'll see. We'll see. I think early on, creative is going to be creativity is going to be a very big opportunity of writing scripts or making content at scale. And so I'm keeping a close eye on that. Yeah, absolutely interesting. And I think to kind of sum that one up, because of course, ChatGPT or NFTs, Web 3.0, cybersecurity, data information, there's so many, of course, technologies that we need to keep an eye out for some sooner than and others later, of course. But what is your suggestion on how to actually keep track of the trends and the technologies that are happening out there? Are there any ways that you are operating there and what would your suggestions be for the audience in how to stay on top of these put in the work you know uh, i subscribe to a lot of newsletters i have a lot of google alerts i have a lot of um uh google trends saved like you know put in the work i check the top 100 i mean i'll do it here in real time here's my phone right and i can you know easily look at see give me one second here's the app store and i just go right into the app store and i go to apps and i can see you know what the top 100 you know here are the free apps top of the charts and 
you know, I can look at, excuse me, I can really look, oops, sorry, I'm sorry. This is the top 100 apps in the app store right now. And then I look and I'm like, here's CapCut. It's a video editing software and it's number one. Like, that's interesting. Why is it number one, right? And you keep looking and you keep looking and you keep looking. And then you might be able to see a new app. Like, oh, look, Pinterest is at number 30. That's pretty high. Like, and a lot of people don't talk about Pinterest right now at scale. Um, and what does that mean? Is that an opportunity? Is there more things to be done on Pinterest than maybe I that I realize as a content producer, right? And so you keep looking, you keep looking, keep looking. And what I do here a lot is sometimes you see something show up at number 85, at number 90, and you start trying to figure out, you know, where is that going? What does that mean? Is there something emerging that I've never heard of before? And this is how I found you know, Snapchat early and how I found TikTok early and how I found Vine early. And so, you know, and then I look at this and I'm like, oh, you know, Be Real is at 114 and that was, you know, originally in the top 20 or 30. So maybe it's declining and, you know, it's just putting in the work. It sounds very simple. <laughs> it should be not harder than that, really, but really putting that one in there. Yeah, it's, you know, people are like, how do you always know what's coming next? I'm like, I search the app store. You know, I, I think that people overcomplicate things. I also think that people don't want to put in the work. Like, that does take 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. You, you also then, if you're really going to do it, you have to download the apps. You spend an hour in that app and realizing what it is or what can it be. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a work game. It's a work game. Definitely, indeed. I think that sounds amazing, and we we're also uh, definitely going uh, about the time here. And I was, wanted to use the last minutes that we also have here, about uh, fifteen or so minutes, also to go through more of the audience questions because that's I think where the real value also lies in here. And there's one that I really, really kind of stood out for me too, uh, for you, Gary. What do you think parents should do more often to inspire their kids to make a difference? make them feel safe. You know, I think kids, parents don't realize how much they use fear to parent. Kids will never make a difference if they don't feel safe. If you don't feel safe, you don't have the ability to create the energy to go on offense and create change. And so, you know, I think what parents should do more is, is um, parent with optimism, practical optimism, not delusion, um, hope, um, belief and less about fear you know i think parents don't realize how much they use fear on a daily basis you can't do that don't hang out with that kid get off your phone no no fear no no fear and i think parents have to flip that switch absolutely getting them to feel feel safe kind of creates that happiness and creates the opportunity to actually make a difference. And I think kind of yes. continue that one, like some of the topics like overall in life doesn't necessarily need to be on the topic of, of course, parents with kids, but it was also a question on if you have to make a hard decision, how do you do that? Uh, you know, I, I just go with the best gut answer I can at that point with the best information I have. I'm not scared to be wrong. This goes back to fear, my friend. Right. This is why I'm so big against fear. It's why so much of my content rails against fear. I think it's a it's a it's a weapon of choice of politicians, parents, bosses. Um, I just make a choice. 
the real question is, why am I so comfortable making choices? It's because I don't fear being wrong. If I'm wrong, I become accountable and I learn from it and I move on. But some people think if they're wrong, it's like a scarlet letter that they could never get over. Mm, absolutely. Uh, continuing to, uh, to our next question too is, um, how do I continuously improve and innovate my business or career to stay ahead of the competition? I think it goes back to what we just talked about earlier. You you know the AIs out there. You know Web threes out there. You know modern socials out there. For the people that are watching here, are you playing with it? Are you making within it? Have you used Chat GPT? Um, I, I think it's it's scouring for the information um, and then executing on it. Everyone here made a commitment to be part of this conference for the last hour. This chat. Um, there's insights. There's observations. There's thoughts, whether the ideas I have work for you or not, they've definitely created the beginning of a conversation with yourself. And if you find that there is a value in exploring something, well, then you have to explore it and actually execute on it. Um, that's how you advance yourself. Mm. Now, speaking of that, I'll, kind give of you an, I'll, give, I'll give you an, I'll give you an analogy. You could learn that doing push-ups are good for your chest muscles, but if you don't do the push-ups, you don't get the value. Definitely. It's a very simple one, but it, it's very, very true. Uh, speaking of that kind of advancements too, uh, there's actually one very good question here uh, in terms of this macro versus micro. Are there any recommendations from you to how to balance the need for those quick wins with transformative actions that may take longer uh, to be visible? So there is a longer vision, but you also need these kind of quick wins for the transformation. The, the issue there is that's a corporate environment. That means, you know, the quick wins are not needed unless you're trying to create a narrative to sustain um, your job or to sustain funding or support. I find that quick wins uh, often in a corporate environment are dangerous because they lead to bad behavior. I think what's more powerful is instead of quick wins, slow conversations with the leaders that have the power. Hour, the CFO, the CEO, the board, um, to give you the time. I think it's much more effective to have real conversations with the people that control things and say, look, this will take three years versus having to create uh, a narrative that we had some sort of win six months in when because we're going to then put our energy for the short win, which oftentimes is in conflict with building the thing meaningfully. So how do you then make sure that you have the priorities straight? Because there is a question here, like how can I find the right priorities in my work to serve the organization at best? And I think that could also sometimes be from different layers in the organization too. But what's your take on that? Yeah, if you're underneath, you just ask. You just really ask. More communication. We don't have enough communication. I think as a leader, um, that you just have to be comfortable with making a subjective call. Like I make an enormous amount of subjective calls on the direction I take my company and all the time. And um, that is, you know, the way I know if that's right or wrong is a year later, the market will tell me if it's responding to my products and services. And if it's not, then the market was right. Not my, not my confidence in my decision. And I have to then adjust, but employees need to ask and really leaders need to ask. It's just to get the answer slower because by, they have to really see how the market responds to what they're making. So speaking of that, that kind of setting the priorities too, 
what do you think is particularly important when it comes to self-leadership and also finding priorities? Uh, leading with optimism that's practical, not fear, is number one. Number two is being accountable. If the leader's not accountable, you're dead. Number three is, I think, um, curiosity. I think leaders have to find things. And if you're not curious, um, if you're only looking backwards, not forwards, uh, you won't be able to lean on that curiosity to drive results. Um, communication, I think vulnerability, I think is important in leaders. Um, tenacity, you know, it, you're just going to have to will certain things to success as a leader. Um, so I think that's a big one. And I think those are the things that stand out, at least at this point, there's so much that goes into being a leader and really self-awareness, actually, you know, for so many people here, they might not be tenacious and that's okay. Many leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs have been very successful without being tenacious. That was their half. They weren't as good. I was very successful without being great at candor. Um, I'm just more successful with it now. And so, you know, I think that's how we have to look at it, which is a lot of things I bring up are true, but they may not be a necessity for you right now, but it's very important to consider one's capacity to get better at certain things that are true. Mm. Absolutely, indeed. Here is actually a kind of a situation for, for one person here who wants to hear a bit of like open-minded insights and thoughts about the situation. And I really want to bring this one in here uh, because this person, anonymous, uh, sending in the question, but I'm very ambitious and always do my best and toughest expectations is always my own. I was diagnosed with cancer last year, but have overcome that. Now I kind of want to slow down and enjoy, but still be successful, which I find hard. So do you have any open-minded insights and thoughts about this situation? Can you read that one more time? I want to really grasp that. I like that question a lot. I am very ambitious and always do my best. And the toughest expectations is always my own. I was diagnosed with cancer last year, but have overcome that. Now I want to kind of slow down and enjoy, but still successful, which I find hard. Mm, super powerful. You know, I think this comes down to not judging yourself. Um, you know, why? Why do you want to be ambitious and successful? For me, um, I just enjoy the game of entrepreneurship. It's literally like my hobby. Um, but for others, it's to prove a point. It's to, you know, I think there's two ways to be motivated. One is um, confidence and one is insecurity. And I find that most people are actually driven by insecurity. They desperately want to prove something to someone. And for this individual, I, I would just ask them to ask themselves, why? Who are they trying to prove it to? A parent that did not believe in them, a girl or boy that did not love them or believe in them. Like, what is it? What is the chip on your shoulder? Or, or is it something completely left field and a teacher once told you something or you saw something on TV or you're inspired by someone? But this is about judgment of oneself. Like, you know, finding it hard to be balanced and enjoy life. Maybe you enjoy work. Maybe that's okay. I don't love the part that says I'm my toughest critic. I'm the reverse. I'm my biggest fan. Like I'm incredibly not critical of myself. I'm accountable, but I'm not critical. When I fail, I give myself the benefit of the doubt that I'm a human being and I thrive. And I just want to make sure there's a lot of self-love and lack of judgment there. 
Because once you get into real self-love and lack of judging yourself, you're able to open up and create a lot more healthy uh, offense on creating the world you're looking for. Would you say that the far majority has more self-criticism than actual self-love? Yes, I would. I would argue that, my friend, at scale, it's my, it's such a big driver of the content I produce. I want people to love themselves more. I need people to love themselves more. You, you're just not going to be able to sustainably build something if you don't. Why now, do you think that mean, it's so easy to go that road? Like more self-criticism than actual self-love. Why do you think it's so easy to go that road, or that the majority actually do that? I think parenting in the last hundred years has not done a great job in setting people up for self-love. I think parenting and government um, and media peddle fear. And I think fear leads one's self into that framework. Interesting. Absolutely. It was a very powerful story indeed for, for that one. And uh, that self-love should definitely be more in the, in the lead for creating these opportunities. Um, and and real quick, I want everybody yeah. to hear this. This is a nuance. Self love doesn't mean become delusional and get become so high on your own, you know, bravado that you're delusional and you don't see your shortcomings. So it's very easy to have self love and humility, and most people don't think so. They think of self love as ego and delusion, and like, oh, you think you're so great. You, you, you can't see it. I, I don't believe in that. I believe that one can love it themselves, but still have the humility to be accountable and critical on oneself. But, you know, criticizing yourself occasionally or holding yourself accountable is very different than beating yourself up and saying, I'm stupid. I'm ugly. I'm not good enough. And, you know, anyone who is saying those things that's watching this now, I, I remind you that somebody put that into your brain um, and you need to get out of it. Mm, absolutely. So continue a bit with, with some of the other questions too. There's actually uh, one that was uh, quite a good, which is more of a clarifying one, since we spoke quite a lot of the kind candor. So it was also a question if you can elaborate a bit more what for you and what candor actually is, and especially what kind candor is. Like what is your definition of what that is? You know, candor is telling someone the truth of what your opinion is, remem remembering that it's your opinion. Um, kind means the way you make someone feel when you tell them the truth, when you're being critical of someone's performance, there is two ways that that person could leave that meeting. Very low and scared or very neutral and inspired to fix it. And um, I think the kindness in delivering the news is important. It's kind of like bedside manners from a doctor. You know, there are doctors who deliver very challenging news. And sometimes um, they do it in a manner that scares the crap out of the patient. And other times they do it in a manner that um, creates um, hope. And so I think that the way you make someone feel really matters. And um, I'm very passionate about that. Mm. Absolutely, indeed. It's a, it's a great one. And uh, I actually wanted to take one last uh, question from the audience before we start to actually wrapping this one up. But this was also a very good one here, uh, which is a, a bit of a kind of real life situation too, as you were talking about a good point, fear, that, that topic. So uh, this person writes, you're clearly right. When I look at the most successful person among my friends, one of the keys to her success is that she is by far the most fearless person I know. 
and you spoke about parents. How can you work on yourself to reduce your fears effectively? Mm. Um, by doing things that make you uncomfortable and by losing, putting yourself in a position where things don't work out makes you comfortable with losing. I think parents and teachers and society overcoddle children. And, you know, as we become adults, we can't blame our children and our circumstances anymore. We can go through therapy. We can take on exercise. We can start consuming content that's more positive than negative. As far as fear elimination, it's a journey of eliminating the value of other people's opinions and becoming accustomed to losing and realizing nothing bad has happened. When you start a business and it fails and none of your friends make fun of you and nobody makes fun of you. In fact, when you close down the company, two or three of your friends take you out to dinner and tell you they admired you for trying, all of a sudden you become more fearless. Absolutely. It's just about testing those ones. Being a bit outside of the comfort zone has never really hurt anyone. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, think, I think people ha people have this crazy fear, like what's going to happen. It's kind of like the way that some people are scared to ask someone on a date. You know, like what's the worst that's going to happen? They say no, like yeah, it hurts, but like you're not going to die. And so, you, you know, like you've got to jump. Like people do you know extreme things like surfing or skydiving like they were scared until they weren't you it becomes normalized and failing in front of people failing in front of people is um incredibly powerful i was such a poor student my whole life that i i was failing in front of my friends and my parents and my friends parents and teachers and you know and i played a lot of sports which meant i lost a lot and so i was losing a lot in front of people and it made me feel comfortable with losing which made me fearless and i think that's uh, one of the very interesting parts as you've also mentioned a bit of uh, a bit previously also on in terms of perspective because in many cases facing a hard situation or decision that you need to take it is like it's the fear of maybe taking that decision or the fear of that situation well i know you have compared it well there's a high likelihood that you can be run over by a car so get a bit of perspective in there too so what's your also take on that one if you want to elaborate a bit more on that perspective of that fear yeah you know you, you've obviously done your homework i talk a lot about like Anything can happen at any time. Like people are scared to make these decisions and then they don't realize that if they made the other decision, maybe something horrible would have happened. Like I always tell people not to regret a decision because you don't know the outcome of the other thing. You might've made the wrong professional decision because you didn't go join Google when it first started and you stayed in your job. Yet, if you went to Google, you would have made a lot more money and become a millionaire, but you might've been... Uh, on a business trip to Tennessee and you might've gotten hit by a bus and you died at 32 instead of 99, um, all because you took a job at Google. So, you know, I think it's just be grateful for what you have. Don't dwell on what you don't have and just keep looking forward. I think that one sums it up quite well for, for this kind of talk. So uh, we're actually, there, there's still a lot more questions from the audience. <laughs> I wish we had more time to really kind of answer every single one of them. Uh, but just, I have one last question for you, Gary. If there's one thing that you would like to instill for or distill for this audience right now, when they kind of leave this one and go about their day, what do you want our audience to remember? That they need to become more self-aware. Know who you are and then love yourself for who that is. You don't need to be anybody but yourself. You don't need to prove anything to anybody. You need to just enjoy your journey 
And whether that's working a lot, great. And whether that's vacationing a lot, great. And whether that's adjusting your balance, great. But you have nothing to prove to no one. You need to really focus on the things that make you happy um, and just be a good, kind person. The reason there's so much angst in the world right now is is people are unhappy because they they just are scared um, and they just just I just am desperate to eliminate fear. And I think the way you eliminate fear is by being self-aware and start navigating around who you are, not who you think you should be. I think that's we don't really have that much more to say from that point on. <laughs> But hey, thank you very much, Gary. It's been amazing uh, to spend this hour with you. That hour flew by way thank too you. fast, if you ask me. Yes. Uh, but it's uh, it's been amazing. Uh, so thank you very much. A huge shout, uh, shout out to you for all the insights, all the good topics here. And uh, I hope we can also connect soon. I think for the ones that have not really getting their questions answered, they should follow your content. A lot of those things are also mentioned in there too, of course. So, hey, Thank I you. wish you a very nice day, Gary, and I hope to connect Cheers. with you soon again. Cheers. I can't wait. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of that episode. We want to remind you to please leave feedback in any way you can, whether that's dropping your comments in the Spotify comment section down below, tweeting Gary at Gary V, or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave us feedback, your questions, comments, reviews might just get shouted out in the next episode.